Father, thank you so much for giving us your word that it might encourage us, that it might strengthen us, that it might correct us, uh, that it might uh, continually equip us uh, for the work of the ministry that you've given us to do. Thank you uh, for the, uh, uh, the variety of your word, uh, how that even among the four gospels, there is distinctiveness about each one. And, and as we look to this gospel, the fourth gospel, I pray that you would show us more about you and our, our, who we are in light of who you are. Uh, now be glorified uh, in the teaching of your word and uh, encourage your people as we devote ourselves to it. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, I, I, I want to kind of give you a little bit of an introduction about the Gospel of John. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. As I've said, the Gospel of John is the fourth Gospel. Uh, now, when I use certain phrases, uh, just know that that is kind of the, uh, uh, the academic or theological way of describing or talking about uh, particular things. The Gospel of John is the fourth Gospel, and you'll hear me refer to the fourth gospel. When I say fourth gospel, I am talking about gospel of John. Uh, there is going to be, especially in the first four chapters, there's going to be a little bit of, uh, uh, of a tendency to mistake me talking about John the Baptist and John the Apostle. Uh, now, as you know, the gospel of John was written by John the Apostle, the brother of James. Uh, he also wrote three letters and the book of Revelation. Uh, now, John the Baptist is different than John the Apostle. Uh, John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus, and he uh, is the one who is uh, like a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And, and so we're going to look at John the Baptist. We're going to talk a lot about John the Baptist, especially tonight, if I get there. Uh, but when I make a distinction between John the Baptist and the writer of the gospel, I will say John the Apostle or John the Evangelist. When I'm talking about John the Baptist, I'll call him John the Baptist or the Baptist, okay? So that just helps clarify which John... Uh, uh, I'm speaking about, all right? So John the Apostle or John the Evangelist. Now, the reason we call him the Evangelist is because he wrote the gospel. And the Greek word for the gospel is euangelion, uh, from which we get evangelist. And so uh, we're looking at the gospel of John. Uh, the gospel of John is the most unique of the four gospels. Uh, the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic Gospels, because there is so much in common with those three Gospels. Uh, and, uh, and if we were doing a study on one of the synoptic Gospels, then we would talk about which one uh, was the first of the three Gospels, and that's called the synoptic problem, uh, which came first, Matthew or Mark. Nobody really says Luke came first. It's usually between Matthew and Mark. Uh, Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels. Uh, Matthew has the Beatitudes. Luke has the Beatitudes. John doesn't have the Beatitudes. Uh, so what is John's 
contribution? Well, John is known as the theological gospel. Uh, Even from the beginning of how John introduces Jesus, Matthew uh, and Luke have a genealogy. Uh, John the Apostle has a cosmic view of Jesus, and, and, uh, and, and so uh, John begins and, and, and ends with, uh, and throughout uh, the 21 chapters, a more theological perspective. Some suggest that John was written... Now, all of these Gospels and all the books of the New Testament were written for a particular people in a particular place for a particular purpose. Uh, we sometimes lose sight of that because we live in the 21st century and we, uh, we don't really understand, well, what was John the Apostle doing when he wrote John's Gospel? Some suggest uh, that, uh, that John was writing... Uh, to believers to strengthen them in their faith. If you look at the very top line of the first page, it says the Gospel of John, uh, that uh, you may have life in his name. Uh, And that is uh, something we'll return to in John uh, chapter 21. Uh, But the purpose statement of John's gospel was so that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that in believing we might have life in his name. Now, some take that to mean uh, that John was writing to believers uh, in, uh, in the Roman Empire, uh, out, probably outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea, and he was trying to equip them in their faith, to encourage them in their faith. Um, and, and so that's one perspective. Another perspective is that John was writing, uh, in some ways, uh, uh, an evangelistic tract. Uh, he was trying to, uh, uh, to write uh, Steps to Peace with God, uh, or The Four Spiritual Laws, or, uh, uh, or uh, uh, one of the evangelism tracts that we might use today. Uh, some believe that He was writing in order to convince people who were far from God that they could find life through Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that you'll hear me talk about regularly, even when I'm not preaching on or teaching on the Gospel of John, is uh, this phrase, uh, First Baptist Church Norfolk uh, serves Hampton Roads so that those who are far from God might find life through Jesus Christ. Uh, That comes directly from the Gospel of John. And the purpose uh, of our church is both to equip you and me uh, to experience the full measure of life that God gives us through faith in Christ. As followers of Jesus, we want to be equipped and we want to be encouraged. And so as we look at the Gospel of John, we find life giving words from Jesus to us Uh, and the Spirit of God awakens in us a stronger faith. We find life through His name. So uh, that's the disciple-making function. But also the church has with it the purpose of of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who don't know Him. In fact, I would contend uh, that if we lose the idea that the church exists for those who are not part of the church, then we've lost the very mission of Jesus Christ. 
And we, as followers of Jesus, we are called, as the church, we are called uh, to stretch out beyond the comfort zones of our own cocooned lives and reach into the world and into the perspectives of people who don't know Jesus. And the Gospel of John, I believe, helps us on that journey to uh, equip us, but also to communicate to those who don't know Jesus to find life through his name. Our church has both that disciple-making function or disciple-building function and evangelistic fervor and function, and we have both of those hand in glove. You can't split those apart. Uh, it's, It's our DNA to build up the body of Christ, and it's our DNA to reach those who are not part of God's kingdom. And in that way, I try, I think, to combine those two purposes um, that John has, both to encourage those who are followers of Jesus and to evangelize or be a witness or a defense or an evangelistic track to those who don't know Jesus. Uh, So I believe John's gospel, the purpose, is both to encourage the saved and win the lost. Um, so, as we look at John's gospel, we're going to see throughout, he, uh, throughout the themes of John's gospel uh, various indicators that help us see, well, this, this speaks to people who don't know Jesus. Um, the I am statements. Uh, the I am statements in John's gospel, and we'll look at each one, and we won't probably cover any of them tonight, uh, but the I am statements of John's gospel are truly uh, evangelistic uh, on the whole. Uh, They demonstrate the kind of life a person can have when he takes hold or she takes hold of Jesus, the great I am. Uh, But they're also very encouraging. Jesus is uh, the, the vine, and we are the branches. Jesus said, I'm the vine. My father is the vine dresser. You are the branches. That's very encouraging to us as followers of Jesus and and instructive to us as followers of Jesus. So the I am statements are are deeply theological, but they they not only equip us for living every day, uh, but they show people who don't know Jesus how they can find life through faith in Jesus Christ. So we're going we're gonna to unpack much of this. We won't un- be able to unpack all of it, uh, but we will begin with John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. That is called the prologue. Uh, now, the prologue of John's gospel, that means it's, uh, if you were to open a book, there would be an introduction. Uh, most, most books have an introduction uh, or a preface, uh, and then chapter 1. Uh, in the same way as John the Apostle was writing uh, this, uh, this gospel, he began with an introduction or a prologue. Uh, the uh, prologue is, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. 
There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light so that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. And that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to as many as believed on his name, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. Charis anti carati. I just like saying that. Uh, grace upon grace. For the law, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came to be through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of the Son, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him or made him known. Now, as we're looking at uh, this uh, prologue of John's gospel, uh, there's something that that needs to be highlighted. First of all, this is, goes beyond uh, the, the historical narrative of a genealogy. Uh, we find that in the Synoptic Gospels. This goes even deeper beyond. It begins with two words, in uh, in the beginning. In in the beginning, calls to mind another pretty famous verse in Scripture, which is Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the same way, John, uh, the apostle, uh, begins his gospel uh, pointing back to the very beginning of recorded time, even beyond uh, the existence of the world. In the beginning was the Word. Now, I wrote up here logos. That is uh, the Greek term for the Word. Uh, And uh, throughout uh, the history of interpretation, uh, different scholars have tried to propose what was John talking about when he called Jesus the Word. Now, we know that logos is talking about Jesus Because in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We know that Lagos is talking about Jesus because John the Baptist came to bear witness to Jesus, who is the light, who gives life to every man. Uh, We know that Lagos is pointing to Jesus. But what is it that John was getting at when he said, in the beginning was the word? Well, logos carries with it a lot of different connotations in the historical uh, perspective and philosophy of John's day. Some have suggested 
that when he used the term logos, he's talking about Old Testament wisdom and pointing to uh, wisdom that we find in Proverbs, the, that personification of wisdom, which literally looks as if it walks hand in hand with God at all times. Others have suggested that logos points to the speech and the activity of God, uh, that Jesus himself was the embodiment of who God is and what God intended to do. And that comes close as well. Uh, There are several other kind of uh, perspectives on what Logos was talking about, uh, but in the end, I think that uh, the third paragraph on page three, uh, first off, John called Jesus the Word. Uh, It meant the speech of God, the law of God, the wisdom of God, the presence of God. The Word, Jesus Christ, is the supreme revelation of God to humanity. Jesus was always with God. Literally, Jesus was face-to-face with God, distinct in personality, but absolutely united and the same with God. This is a very poignant statement that John makes in John 1.1. It is a statement that, uh, in, in academic terms, it's high Christology, which leads some of the more liberal scholars to suggest that this was written in the second century A.D. Uh, It's high Christology because there is this correlation between Jesus and God. What doesn't come out in the English translation or the German translation or even the Latin translation, but what does come through in the Greek translation with the use of particular verbs and prepositions is that John was doing the best he could with the language at his disposal to say that Jesus equals God. Now, that's important. Uh, There are certain uh, sects that claim Christian uh, roots uh, that are nothing more than than, uh, cults uh, that say that Jesus was not God, but he was a God. And when we follow after Jesus and take hold of him, uh, then we can become a God like Jesus was a God. Okay, and, and there is that vein of thinking, uh, and it's built on the absence of an article in the Greek language here in verse 1. I'm not going to bore you with that. You can look at the footnote. There's a footnote there that talks about it. Uh, but the reality is this statement, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, that That phrase, with God, means that Jesus lived in the closest possible proximity to God that is imaginable. There was no separation between Jesus and God, face to face with God. It's a tighter relationship than is described anywhere else in Scripture about a person's relationship with God. There's nowhere else 
in Scripture that describes that kind of relationship. Abraham was a friend of God. David was a friend of God. Uh, but, uh, and, and, and others walked with God. But there is not this combination of words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Nowhere are you going to find that anywhere else in Scripture. And Jesus is God and always has been God. But the opposite is also true. Jesus is distinct from God. And again, this is Trinitarian theology. That's why, that's why this is called high Christology is because it talks about the Trinity. And it's hard for people, uh, liberal scholars who don't believe in the veracity of the Word of God, it's hard for them to imagine uh, that someone writing in the first century AD would have developed this idea that Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit are the Trinity and they are one God. That's high Christology. And you might say, well, that, that, that's kind of confusing. I agree, it's confusing, uh, but it is in concert with uh, what we find in Scripture. In fact, uh, later on, uh, we're going to see that that uh, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And then he goes on and he says that, that, uh, uh, that Jesus bears witness and, and he bears witness to humanity for the Spirit does not, uh, for God does not give the Spirit without, uh, without measure. And what that means is that as Jesus and God the Father are one, the Spirit of God is also in the mix. And there is no limitation to the presence of the Spirit with Jesus, with God, and Jesus and God with the Spirit. There is no limitation to that. There are no parameters. They are distinct, yes, but they are one. So as we look at verse 1, we need to understand that Jesus is and always has been God. He was in the beginning with God. Then, beginning in verse 3, we see that everything that was made was made by Jesus. Again, John moves into creation following the pattern of Genesis 1, John moves to the idea of creation. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Uh, now, John describes Jesus as the logos, the word, and now he says that Jesus, the, the word who is God, uh, who lives in closest proximity with God, is the agent of creation. Again, we hear this same uh, theology uh, reflected in Colossians chapter 1, where Paul talks about uh, creation. Uh, I think it's in verse 17 through 21 or somewhere in there. This isn't about Colossians, so I didn't have to remember that. But, uh, but he talks about uh, Jesus being the firstborn of creation and the agent of creation who holds all things together and by whom and for whom all things exist and subsist. The picture that we see in verse 3 is that Jesus is 
the creator. Now, that doesn't mean that God is not the creator. It means that Jesus is the creator. Remember, we're talking about high Christology. This is a picture of the Godhead in action. And so Jesus, before time began, before the world was created, was with God from the very beginning, was God from the very beginning, and created the universe with God. Now imagine being a reader of this gospel in the first and second century AD. Imagine being a reader of this gospel and being a Jewish person. Immediately you're struck by heresy as a Jewish person. It seems very non-monotheistic. It seems as if you are saying that Jesus is equal to God. And that's exactly what John did. Now, he'll take 20 chapters to prove it. But that's what he'll do. Imagine a first century or second century person reading this. It sounds like a myth that they had grown up with. Uh, If you're from a Hellenistic background or a Greek background, and, and you hear the story of creation, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and, and He was in the beginning, uh, and the Word was with God from the very beginning, and all things were made through Him, and nothing was made that was made. Now, you're thinking, wow, this is the story of origins. And truly, that's what John does. He, he, he talks about the story of origins. I don't know how many of you all have read any Greek mythology, Uh, But there are a lot of different stories of origins in Greek mythology, even going back to the creation of the little G-O-D-S, the gods. Aeschylus gives, uh, uh, I don't even know how to spell it, A-E-S-C-H-Y-L-L-U-S, I think, Aeschylus. Uh, he, he, he wrote poetry, and in this poetry, he described this, this intricate, with intricate detail, the, the story of origins and creation. John does it in one verse. Why? Because John didn't need intricacy, he just needed Jesus. And you and I are here tonight, and we live not in the day of fairy tales or mythic formulations. We live in the day and time of of origins still, evolution, and evolutionary theories. And and make no mistake, evolution is still a theory because to be a fact, it has to be provable, and evolution by its very nature can't be provable. Um, And we're talking about not natural adaptation, we're talking about macroevolution. So it's, it's unprovable, and, and, and so John today is speaking to people immersed in a concept called evolution, and the question is, do we jettison evolution for the sake of John chapter 1 through 3? And the answer is, nah, no, I, I don't think so. I don't think you have to. I think, I think that at core, John wasn't trying to write a scientific treatise But he did want us to understand that the origin of all things came from God. Now, I personally am a a six-day creationist. Not a seven-day, because God rested on the seventh. And I believe that God did all that, and he could do all that. I don't have to be so smart as to figure out what evolution means in the mix of all that. I'm not not even going to try. 
You might say, well, that's uneducated. Yeah, I got my PhD in something else. And I have friends who are very dead set on, you mean if I believe in evolutionary theory, then I can't believe in God. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that you have to go to the beginning and say, however it works, God is at the origin. He's the one who begins it. I, don't, I, I believe that he did it in six days, and, and everything we see around us was his creative work in its own unique way. Uh, but I have people very close to me who love Jesus with the deepest passion you could ever imagine who believe that God orchestrated evolution in a particular way with big bangs. Uh, by the way, I would say that you need God at the center of a big bang. I, I, I just I can't imagine getting a, getting a Swiss clock out of a, out of a bunch of rocks floating in space and not say God had something to do with it. I just can't imagine that. Um, and it does lead us to consider, well, why does John speak about origins? I think he speaks about origins in verse 3 so that he can get us to the point of it's not just about the creation of the world, but it's about life and about light. If you remember in Genesis 1, uh, the, uh, the idea of light was a big thing. In Genesis 1, God separated the light from the darkness. God spoke and light became, and, and, and light was a big deal. In John's gospel, light is also a big deal, not just here at the beginning of time as he's writing about it, but light uh, really begins to become a foil to darkness. There's light and there's darkness. Uh, there's hope and there's despair. There's joy and there's misery. John, uh, throughout the gospel, uh, paints this picture of, I won't call it dualities because that carries with it uh, another nuance of meaning, but, but he has these polarities. And those polarities carry with them deep theological significance. Here, when John uses the term light, he is equating that to life. And uh, light becomes the metaphor for life. When he talks about darkness, he's talking generally about evil or sin or death. So as we look here in, in, uh, in John chapter 1, uh, John says, uh, that which came to be in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. That which came to be in Jesus, that which came to be in the Logos. Now, this calls our attention to fast forward to verse 14. Now, Jesus was always the possessor of light and life, no doubt. But in the particular language that John uses in verse 4, there is this indicator that he's talking about the incarnation of Jesus. Most of the time, when we talk about Jesus becoming a baby in Bethlehem, we move directly to verse 14. But there is an indicator, and it's, it's, not, it, it's not universally accepted. Not everybody agrees with this. I tend to. Uh, but I think verse 4, he's talking about the incarnation because he connects this light with life for humanity. And so, uh, in that which came to be, uh, again, came to be is another uh, important uh, verb. There are, uh, 
uh, verbs of being that John uses uh, throughout this prologue. Uh, one is became or become. The other is was, okay, uh, or is. Uh, this is that Greek word. This is that Greek word. So become is genomai, was or is is hain. And what we see, or ain, I can't remember. Anyway, it's probably in a footnote somewhere. Uh, by the way, do y'all like my footnotes? Y'all don't, but I do, and I appreciate that. Uh, as we look at John's use of language, it becomes very important as we discover that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Ain here, was, means that there is this connection between what is and what always is. There, there's no change here. It is a consistency. Become, that's what happens in, in, to change something. Jesus was always God. He became flesh and bone. Incarnation. Again, verse 4, that which came to be in him was life. The language there describes, in my thinking, um, a, uh, a, a picture of this incarnation. In, in him is life. And now that life is light of men. Uh, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot snuff it out. Now, your translation uh, may read, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Uh, others did not understand it. Others did not uh, uh, snuff it out, did not extinguish it. Uh, all of those uh, translations are appropriate given the Greek verb that is used. Uh, I believe in context uh, that uh, snuff it out, overcome it, uh, di diminish it in any way. I think that is a better picture of what John the evangelist was getting at in verse 5. Uh, but I don't have a problem saying that the darkness didn't understand it, that, that uh, this light begins to shine and this life invades the, the universe and, and, and darkness in, a, in this deep theological picture of people under the, uh, uh, under the uh, weight of that darkness and in bondage to that darkness. They couldn't comprehend what this light and life was. So I don't have a problem with that. I just think that it fits better uh, to say that the darkness, evil itself, could not comprehend it, although the darkness thought that it snuffed the light out. Now, you have to fast forward to John chapter 18 and 19 to get the story of that, pic uh, of, of that scenario where uh, darkness seems to win by killing Jesus on a cross. Darkness snuffs out the light. But the resurrection says, John chapter 20, the res resurrection says that, that no, the darkness could not 
extinguish the light. Okay, so there's the picture and the connections between uh, the, the, the various chapters and, and themes that come, out, come throughout the Gospel of John. But what John the Evangelist is talking about in verses 4 and 5 is that Jesus came to bring life to humanity. It's simple. I mean, keep it simple. Jesus came to take those who are dwelling in darkness, and upon them a great light has shined. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. Those who dwelt in the land of shadows, those who lived in deep darkness, upon them a light has shined. That light is Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Later in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus is going to step out uh, of, uh, of, of, of the darkness and into a circle of light, and he is going to declare, I am the light of the world. Light becomes a strong feature throughout the Gospel of John, and it helps us understand more uh, specifically what Jesus came to do. Jesus didn't come, and by the way, Jesus didn't come to make us smarter. Light here is not a description of becoming more intelligent. It's not a, a description of someone uh, uh, having the light, come on, uh, when, when you're studying math. I, I'm, I'm, I'm math uh, deficient. I, I, I couldn't stand it. I got through business statistics by the skin of my teeth after the second, third try. And, but I got through. And, uh, and, and, and so uh, there were no lights going on in my head. And I, as I'm going through business statistics, I, I, I navigated through Algebra 1, algebra, all that stuff. But uh, there were occasions when I was doing multiplication where lights came on. Oh, I understand that, 2 plus 2, 2 times 2. I get that, all right? So, so there were some lights that came on, a, 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 a new awareness, a new understanding. That's not what John's talking about here. He describes it. That which came to be in him was life, and that life was the light of men. He's talking about the difference between living in, 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 in life and living in death. He is comparing light and darkness, life and death. And he's saying Jesus came to deliver life. That's why when you read the I am statements, Jesus said, I am the resurrection of life. He who uh, uh, believes in me, even though he die, uh, he will live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's John 11. Why, why is he saying that? Because he, he is the life that came to, he is the light that came to give life to every man. As he talks to the woman at the well of Sychar, he said, if, if you were to worship me, out of you will spring livers, rivers of living, life-giving water. Why? Because he's the one who has come to give life. That's why he said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus came on a mission as the light invading the darkness to give life to those who are dwelling in death. Okay, so that is, that's why I take four and five to be the incarnation, or at least a hint at the incarnation. Also, because verse six introduces, man, I am not doing well. Because verse six introduces, I have gotten through six verses, though, well, five verses. Verse six introduces John the Baptist. Um, uh, John the Baptist, and we'll look at him a little bit more closely. Uh, John the Baptist 
gives witness to Jesus. We're on page four. Um, uh, beginning in verse six, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light so that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Now, as we look at John the Baptist, uh, without taking too much time, uh, John was a man. He was an ordinary man. He was a man like you and I are men and women. He, he was a human being. He was not uh, a demagogue. He was not supernatural. He was not a superman. He was an ordinary guy with an extraordinary assignment. The interesting thing is that Jesus said that there is no other human living or who has lived before who was as great a guy as John the Baptist. That's pretty good stuff. That's in Luke. I mean, I mean, John the Baptist was a big deal. The reason John the Baptist was a big deal is because he was the forerunner to Jesus. And John the Baptist fulfilled his assignment perfectly. He gave testimony to Jesus. That was his assignment. His assignment was not to make a big deal about himself. Uh, I, I, I envision John as being probably a little bit irascible, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe he was a really kind man. He seems to me like be a, kind of a rough and tumble kind of guy, a straight shooter, a, maybe a little bit rude. You wouldn't want him as your pastor. He, he was unbending, unyielding. Why? Because he was so strong in his purpose. He understood what he was here to do. And he said, there's one who's coming after me, who is preferred before me because he was before me. Well, if you just do the math, John the Baptist was born before Jesus. Right? Y'all got that one down. Elizabeth got pregnant before Mary. So there you have it. So what was John talking about? He is the one who has come before me because he was before me. Again, going back to the preexistence of Jesus. There are these really, really smart cat daddies who look at this stuff and they say that there's nothing in John's gospel that talks about the preexistence of Jesus. That's what I said. What? What? Anyway, um, I don't even, their own making. They go through, yeah, have you, I thought about doing this and I, I don't have time for this, but I'm going to, I, I think I'm going to go through and I'm going to uh, uh, let Jesus speak 140, 140 characters at a time. Can you imagine? What kind of sermons would that be? He would definitely have to have a blog to go with it. But that's how these people get it. They take a few words and phrases and say, those are the words of Jesus. The rest are inauthentic. They don't count. They're compilations from later times. If you ever watch Bill Maher, please don't if you have, but if you ever watch Bill Maher and he talks about 
church and Bible and Jesus and stuff. He is just pulling from a, a, a rampant pool of ignorance where he says that the Bible was written by people in the second century A.D. He is, an, he is, he is, he is, he is not smart. <laughs> We're on Facebook Live, so I have to be very, very careful. It just shows the rampant ignorance that he has. He's read a couple of people who said that the Bible was written in 2nd century A.D. While you have 2,000 years of people who have been theologians for all that period of time, some, some, not even Christians, who would absolutely affirm that these Gospels were written in the 1st century A.D. The oldest book in the New Testament we have is 90 A.D., the oldest. And that's the book of Revelation, which I'm never going to teach again. All right. <laughs> so as we look at John the Baptist, he came, he, had, he was an ordinary man with an extraordinary assignment. And can I just make some application here? I, I rarely make application between us and Jesus. I, I, I rarely do that. John the Baptist is free game. You and I are ordinary people, and you and I are extra, have an or, extraordinary assignment, and that is to bear witness to the light. Rather than making a big deal about ourselves, we need to be, make, be making a big deal about Jesus. Instead of talking about me, we need to be, I need to be talking about Jesus. Instead of pointing people to how great I am, I need to point people to how great Jesus is. John the Baptist got it right. He said, I'm only going to speak about what God has given me to speak, and I'm going to point everybody I can to Jesus. We're going to see that come alive here in a few moments if we get there. 648. Um, all right, so he says uh, he, he's the one, he's not that light, verse 8, uh, but he came to bear witness. Now, I just want you to see, there's a man sent from God whose name was John, verse 6. Th- verse 7, he came for a witness, to bear witness, same words in the Greek, just different forms. Verse 9, uh, or verse 8, he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that. So three times, three times. Verse 7 and 8, John the Baptist had an assignment. What was that assignment? Bear witness. Make no mistake. As followers of Jesus, if we're faithfully following after him, we have an assignment. That is to bear witness of the light. Now, guys, I know it can be hard sometimes but it's only hard because we refuse to step into our level of discomfort. We have an assignment, and that is to bear witness of the light. Are you talking about Jesus at work? You should. How has he changed your life? What's he doing in your world? Are you talking about Jesus when you, when you go shop? Are you talking about Jesus when you come to church? I mean, I shouldn't even have to say that, but my goodness... Are you talking about Jesus? Are you pointing people to Jesus rather than yourself when you come to church? We have an assignment. Ordinary people, just like John the Baptist, but we have an extraordinary assignment. That is to bear witness to the light. All right, moving on, moving on, moving on. So, verse 9, Jesus is the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Okay? Okay. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. All right, so, so here is the picture of creation. Jesus made the world. Everything that was made in the world was made through him, and the world didn't know him. 
verse 11 says that he came to his own. And that is his own people. Uh, he came to the Jewish people. Uh, and, and they didn't receive him. So here's a summary snapshot of the ministry of Jesus. He came into the world. The world didn't know who he was. He came to his own people, and his own people didn't receive him. Now, verse 12, the kicker. But as many as received him, to as many as believed on his name, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God. To as many as received him. To as many as believed on his name, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God. He gave the power, the authority to be in God's family. So as we look at this verse, we see that Jesus was rejected. He was rejected by the world. He was rejected by his own. But page five, number five, those who receive Jesus receive life. Now, this life that comes is salvation. It is conversion. It is moving from darkness to light. People say to me, you know, Eric, I, I wasn't raised in a Baptist tradition where y'all have that walk down the aisle business or that point in time business. Uh, I, 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 I was saved. I just don't know about, you know, I don't, I, I can't pinpoint the time and, and I can appreciate that. I, I really can. I, I, I have a sympathy for that, but please understand you did not always know God. You have not always been part of his family. There has to be a point in time where you cross from darkness to light, from death to life. You might not be able to pinpoint it, but the results are unmistakable. You and I did not always have a friendship with God. My soul we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were separated from the promises of God. We were living without God and without hope in this world. That's who we were. But there came a point in time, if indeed we received Jesus, the Greek term for received there is lambano, and it means to welcome, to embrace. It, it means to hold to yourself. As many as received him, there had to be a time, if indeed you're a follower of Jesus, there had to be a time where you welcomed Jesus and all that he is and all that he has done and made it your very own. You believed in his name. You welcomed him. You believed who he was, that he is and always has been God, that, that he became flesh and bone, that he lived a sinless, perfect life, that he went to the cross for a sinner just like you, and he died in your place to pay the price for your sin, that he was raised again from the dead, and now through faith in him, you can live. There has to be that movement from darkness to light, from death to life. Without that, you're not a follower of Jesus. You may be a church member, but you're not a follower of Jesus. Now, you, you may be a religious person, but you're not going to heaven when you die. If I can be so bold. Okay? I, I'm not saying you have to pinpoint it. 
You don't have to have the hour and the minute and the second of the particular day. I'm not saying that, but my soul, there is a big difference between daylight and dark. And if you're in daylight, you're not mistaking it for dark. Okay? I think part of the problem is we've raised a lot of moral people, especially in the American church. We've raised a lot of religious people in the American church. We've raised a lot of lost people in the American church. And they can quote Bible verses and they say their prayers like a good Pharisee would. I don't mean that ugly. I really, I don't mean that ugly. My soul, make no mistake, if, if I were a lost person, I'd want to be just like the Pharisees. They were devoted. They were disciplined. They were committed. They kept the law. I, and, and, and many people in the church, I mean, live just like that. But you're still in darkness. Now, that, that, uh, this conversion that happens doesn't happen because of what I have done. Okay, you got to take verse 12. Yes, I love verse 12, but verse 13 is pretty powerful too. Okay, look at verse 13. Born, uh, born not of blood. So it's not your heritage. It's not your lineage. It's not that you were a Jew or born Baptist. That doesn't get you into the kingdom of God. That doesn't get you into the family of God. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. Can I tell you? That, that points to my determined efforts, my works. I'm going to work my way into heaven. Uh, no, you're not. And that points to I'm, if I can just think the right thoughts and do the right things and go to the right places and avoid the wrong places, then I'm going to be okay. And the answer is no, you're not. Uh, born not of the will of man. Can, can I humbly suggest that uh, throughout the gospel of John, there is this picture that if you and I are going to come into God's family, it's going to come at the initiation of God himself. God doesn't operate willy-nilly, but he does send his spirit to blow where he wills, and the spirit awakens us to see our darkness and our desperate need for a savior named Jesus but it doesn't happen because one day you wake up and say, man, I think I'll try this Christian thing one day. It doesn't work like that. In Baptist world, we call that conviction of sin. And certainly that is an appropriate description, or at least a partially appropriate description. Theologically, it is that God takes the initiative to rescue sinners like you and me. And he opens our hearts and our minds to see our sinfulness and to see his rescuing love through Jesus. Born not of, uh, uh, not, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. Born by his initiative, born by, by, by his activity in the person of Jesus Christ and the operation of his spirit among humanity. Guys, Listen, you cannot manipulate God. And, and, and again, there's a whole world of, of different ideas about how salvation works. Here's what I know. God is sovereign. I know that. 
I also know that God wills for every person to come to faith in Jesus Christ. I know that. So God's going to operate in a way to open eyes and see. But not everyone is going to respond. On the other hand, just cause you wake up with heartburn and decide in this miracle moment that you're going to try Jesus for a little bit, that's not conversion. That's the will of man. And just because you were born in the church and your mama and your daddy were, were both preachers doesn't mean that you are now part of God's family. Today, we need to understand how God operates, and He will not be manipulated, period. Now, Some of y'all are going, well, what in the world does all that mean? Well, it means that God desires for people to be saved. He set the process in motion. He's allowed us to see the opportunity for rescue. He awakens our heart by His Spirit so that we can repent our sin and come to faith in Jesus Christ. And He does it with absolute justice, equity, and love. Because remember, John 3, 16 and 17 really tell a story too. That everyone who believes in Jesus receives eternal life. It's a beautiful picture. It's a little scary at times, all right? So, as we look at this, it moves us to verse 14. This is the incarnation, and the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Another I'm not going to try to say this out loud because I'll get it wrong and it'll be bad. But skenao dwelt among us. It's a picture of the tabernacle of the Old Testament. Before the temple, when the uh, people of God lived in tents and even the, 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 the tabernacle was a tent and you saw that the, the, the Ark of the Covenant resided in the tent, and the Shekinah glory of God was in the tent. And, and, and that's, that's the picture of skenao. It is that Jesus dwelt among us. And he carried with him the Shekinah glory <coughs> of God. He became the, the walking around tabernacle of God. We beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Right now, there's a great debate uh, going on among theological circles about the meaning of monogenes, monogenes. Uh, Your translation may read only begotten. How many of y'all have that? Raise your hands. You got only begotten. Okay. How many of y'all have only or unique one? Something like that. What is NASB? You got NASB, Dick? Only begotten. begotten. So as you look at this, the debate now is whether or not monogenes means only begotten uh, or whether it means unique one. 
It's not a debate we're going to talk about, but the reason you have only begotten here is because mono means only. Ganes, it comes from uh, ganao, which means begotten. That's why you have only begotten here. Most scholars, at least up until about the last year and a half, most scholars, however, have considered monogenes to mean unique one or only. Um, There are important parts to that, but none that we need to bog ourselves down with. Um, But I thought if you want to Google it, there are some articles on the internet that you can read. Um, I don't recommend it, but if you're of that nature, uh, you might find that to be fun. Um, But uh, the, the ancient creeds, However, you know, you got ancient creeds of the church, uh, and uh, the ancient creeds uh, said monogenes equal only begotten. That's what the ancient creeds said. So that's the closest to the New Testament writing, okay, the ancient creed. So only begotten's good. Uh, I kind of like it. So as we look at this, what, what John the evangelist is saying is that Jesus came and he was born and he became flesh and bone. And he left heaven's throne and became flesh and bone. A good parallel passage to look at when you're looking at John 1.14 is Philippians chapter 2 verses 6, 7 and 8 and 9 if you want or 10. Uh, But Philippians chapter 2 is... uh, uh, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took on the form of a servant's servant and came in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a great parallel passage. It's called a hymn to Christ in Philippians chapter two. Um, so as we look at this and and uh, John the Baptist comes back into the forefront in verse 15. He said, here's the one who comes after me. He's preferred before me. He was before me. Verse 16, of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. I won't uh, go down the road of charis anti karate. Uh, essentially, uh, I believe grace upon grace means that Jesus came to bring the full measure of God's grace to humanity. And the only way we can receive the full measure of God's grace, not only for salvation, but for everyday living, uh, to be saturated in grace, the only way that's going to happen is through Jesus Christ. Uh, Verse 17, uh, law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father. See the close proximity there? Again, huge huge metaphor. Uh, He has declared him. Literally, he has unveiled him. You'll hear me use the term unveiled. I use it a lot. I like it. I like unveiled. He unveils this. He unveils that. Uh, That's what Jesus came to do. He came to declare God. He came to unveil God to a world in need of God. 
All right? That's the prologue. It's 7.06. Let's jump in. Any questions? I don't think we're going to get to chapter 4. Can I get an amen? Uh, Edie, my wife, has told me not once but at least twice that she is going to work with me before next week so that I can make these little note sheets prettier, more interactive, I think, is what she was trying to hit at, something that would, you know, pop rather than just a bunch of words. So I will embrace that. Uh, We're back at John the Baptist. Now, uh, in John chapter 1, verses 19 through 51, we have a prelude to the ministry of Jesus. This is all uh, what happens before Jesus actually initiates uh, his his ministry. And, And again, without spending too much time on all of these things, John the Baptist is now a voice crying in the wilderness, verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny. Verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. That is packing in very significant language in in just a few words. It's, It's an emphatic way to say that John's answer was absolute. Okay, he confessed, he did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. We don't know exactly why John included such power-packed language to deny uh, that, uh, that, that John the Baptist would use to deny that he is the Christ, uh, but uh, uh, it, it, it becomes important, John the Baptist, understanding his own identity I'm not the Christ. Look, many of us at times, we need to be careful our language and what we say. There is not a preacher on earth who saved a soul. And sometimes in religious circles, we say, well, you know, I went to Billy Graham crusade and he saved me. No, he didn't because he is not the Christ. Okay. And you didn't mean it that way, but for someone who doesn't know Jesus, they might misunderstand that. We need to be careful of our language. I think John the Baptist is being very particular about his language. He said, I am not the Messiah. Uh, the, uh, by the way, the people in Jerusalem, the, the, the head of the church in Jerusalem, the head of, uh, of, the, of the Jewish uh, church and religious leaders, they sent people uh, to John the Baptist, and they wanted to know uh, if he was the Messiah, because everybody was flocking to John the Baptist, and he, there was a movement going on. So, so they said, are you the Christ? And he said, no, I'm not. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he said, no. Uh, so in these words, the only one that causes us a little bit of consternation is Elijah. Um, cause in Malachi chapter four, verse five, uh, God says, behold, I'll send, uh, Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And, and Jesus himself identified John the Baptist as the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, that G- John the Baptist was Elijah or one like Elijah. And the language is pretty in, important here. Uh, they were asking, are you Elijah? Now, if you remember the context of Elijah, Elijah didn't die. Y'all remember? Elijah was the one 
he passed the mantle to Elisha, and then uh, a chariot of flaming fire led by flaming horses picked Elijah up and carried him off to heaven. Elijah did not die. And in the apocalyptic ideas of Palestinian Judaism, there was this idea that Elijah would come back the way he went away, that he would come back riding this fiery chariot led by horses of fire, and he would inaugurate uh, the coming of the coming of the Lord. And so when Elijah, when uh, John the Baptist says, I'm not Elijah, he's saying, I'm not the Elijah you're talking about. Metaphorically, theologically, he was the Elijah who came to prepare the way of the Lord. But he's not the Elijah that they were expecting. He was answering their specific question with a specific answer. At least that's how I take it. And then the prophet, we're not really sure what they were talking about there. Again, this Palestinian Judaism uh, that, uh, uh, that had great, uh, great apocalyptic ideas and perspectives, uh, they were looking for a prophet uh, and uh, that, that would inaugurate the kingdom of God. And he said, no, I'm not the prophet either. So uh, John the Baptist understood who he was not. And then verse 22, they said to him, well, who are you that you may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And, and verse 24, and, and those who were sent, uh, now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And Jesus, John answered and said, I baptize with water. But, and by the way, he didn't answer this question. He said, he said, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. That verse 27 was the first Greek verse I ever translated into English. Just thought I'd share that with you. Verse 28, these things were done in Beth, Bethabara, beyond the Jordan where John was baptized. So the point that John was making is, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not, I'm not the guy you're looking for. I'm not inaugurating this apocalyptic kingdom that you're hoping for. I'm the guy who is making way for the Messiah. That's who I am. That's what I'm here to do. So why are you baptizing? Well, we see from the synoptic gospels that he was baptizing, calling people to repentance, getting their heart in preparation for the coming of the Lord Jesus. Um, and, uh, and, and really calling sin what sin was and calling uh, people who were righteous, uh, uh, righteous before men but unrighteous in their hearts, calling them to an account and to repentance. And, and uh, in the gospel accounts, the synoptic gospels, uh, John the Baptist said, and the, the ax is laid to the root of the tree even now. I oh, mean, that's some hellfire and brimstone preaching. Uh, but John the Baptist said, I'm baptizing with water, but there is one who is coming after me who's preferred before me. Uh, he's going to baptize with fire. He, he's, going to, he's going to absolutely turn everything on its head because he's going to inaugurate the kingdom of God. So that's the ministry of John the Baptist. Then uh, the message of John the Baptist, and this is on page 15, I think. Uh, the message of John the Baptist is that Jesus overwhelmed sin with his sacrifice. Uh, while John the Baptist was standing there, uh, verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is he of whom I've said, after me uh, comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I didn't know him. Uh, uh, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So Jesus is the Lamb of God. I spent probably too much time talking about the image of the Lamb of God, and y'all can look at that at pages, pages 15 and 16. Uh, what is the picture of the Lamb of God? Ultimately, though, we know that the portrait of Jesus as the Lamb of God is that he removes the stain of sin. And uh, Jesus offers forgiveness. The verification that Jesus is the Son of God is the descending of the Holy Spirit upon him. Uh, John the Baptist says that this is Jesus upon whom the Spirit of God resides, the spirit of truth whom Jesus will uh, uh, explicate. He'll, he'll uh, give us great theological lessons about who the Holy Spirit is uh, in what are known as the paraclete passages of John chapter 14 through 16. Uh, and he talks a lot about the Holy Spirit there, gives us great lessons on the purpose and the, and, the, uh, and the action of the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does and what the Holy Spirit is sent to do. And we'll take great note of that uh, uh, when we get to verses, uh, chapters 14 through 16. Uh, But here, uh, the Holy Spirit descending from heaven, resting on Jesus, is verification that Jesus is the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. And uh, that's the theological significance of that encounter. Well, following that, woo! Following that, we see Jesus and his first disciples. Beginning of verse 35, again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus, he walked and said again, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and uh, said to them, What do you seek? And they said, him, said to him, Rabbi, uh, where are you staying? And Jesus said, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was almost the tenth hour. One of the two heard, uh, who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We found the Messiah, which is translated to Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked, to, looked at Simon and he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Uh, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and found Philip and said to him, follow me. And Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, come and see. You see, come and see, come and see. Pretty important. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit or guile. And Nathanael said, how do you know me? And Jesus said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And and, uh, Jesus said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open. And the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. 
All right, so what do we learn from these uh, encounters? Well, first of all, uh, we discover that Jesus is uh, the one who gives us hope for a future. Uh, Andrew was on a quest. Nathaniel was on a quest. Simon was on a quest. Uh, Philip was on a quest. They were looking for someone to uh, remove the shackles of the life in which they were living. You see people like this all the time, people who are looking for an answer. They're overwhelmed with life. They're overwhelmed with their circumstances. They're overwhelmed with their past or their present or or fear of their future. They're looking for something. And it just so happens that Andrew and and Simon, Nathaniel, and and Philip, they they were hanging around John the Baptist because, again, John the Baptist had sparked a movement. And uh, they were looking to John the Baptist, hoping that the quest, the answer, would be fulfilled. As they're standing there, Jesus comes along and John the Baptist kind of nudges his followers as there he is, the Lamb of God. In that moment, Andrew and Philip experienced hope. They, they, they experienced hope. They believed that maybe, just maybe, this is the guy who would answer their quest. Jesus is the one who gives us hope. And he changes our life with that hope. He changes our life with that hope because the hope that Jesus provides is not just a well-wishing of something better to come along. It's, it, is, it is the invasion of light that gives life. There's nothing more hopeful than light shining in the darkness if you're stuck in the darkness. And Jesus is that light that shines in the darkness. Something happened with Andrew and Nathaniel. When they spent, or Andrew and Philip, when they spent time with Jesus, something changed in them. Why? Because Andrew went back and he went to find his brother Simon. He said, We found the guy. Come see this guy. He's the one. He's the answer. Andrew's heart had been changed by Jesus. He had found hope. And he wanted to share that with his family. Come see him. And Jesus changed Peter's life in that moment. Nathaniel was a skeptic. He, he was a guy that, you know, could anything come, good come out of Nazareth? But When Jesus saw him, Jesus answered his quest and changed his life. We know that Philip's life was changed because he said to Nathanael, you need to come see the guy of whom Moses and the prophets have foretold. This is the man. This is the one who will change your life. He ran after Nathanael and said, come on, come and see. And Nathanael, when he met Jesus... He declared, yes, you are the Son of God. Jesus said, oh, you ain't seen nothing yet. Hereafter, you're going to see the heavens open. And God do great things through Jesus. A couple of points, and, and we'll leave it with this. 
if your life has been changed by Jesus, there is built in you a DNA to share that with someone else. And if you are not sharing it with someone else, then one of two things are your reality. Either your life has not been changed with Jesus, or you have hardened your heart against the things that God has commanded you to do. We have in us a yearning to help other people. Isn't that great? You see someone on the side of the street, you want to know why so many people stand on the side of the street with a cardboard sign asking for help? You know why they do that? Because there is built within us a desire to help people. I believe that is a a common grace that God gives us. Whether we know Jesus or not, I believe every person has built within them that yearning, that desire to help other people. Now, you're a follower of Jesus, and your life has been changed by him. And you see your family and friends standing with a cardboard sign, crying out for help and hope. And are you going to pass them by when you have the ability to help them? If you do, and you're truly a follower of Jesus, it's just because you've hardened your heart against them. You failed to understand the nature of the change that's taken place in you. Or you've grown cold in your commitment and your passion for God. Or you've forgotten how painful it is to stand on the street corner with a cardboard cardboard sign begging for hope. I think that if there's anything that we learn from this last story in the first chapter of John's Gospel, is that Jesus has come to change our world. He's come to change your life. And if he has changed your life, then why in heaven's name are you not sharing that with someone else? You've got to. I'm not saying you do it the way I do it. My goodness, don't. But God has gifted you in a unique way with unique relationships. He's gifted you with your own personality and your own abilities. But you've got to share. When was the last time you went to someone, family, friend, or stranger, and said, I have found hope in Jesus. You can too. Come and see. Maybe today, in hearing that Jesus is the light that gives life, in remembering how he has changed your life and given you hope, maybe today he sparks in you a renewed passion to share him with others. I pray it to be so. For me, for us, as we serve God in his kingdom. We're ordinary people. We have an extraordinary assignment. So let's fulfill it. 726. Questions? Chapter 1. Yes. I, we're not really sure. Uh, the question is, when, when the religious leaders asked John the Baptist if he was the prophet... Not really sure. Uh, Again, there are theories out there, and you can look at the footnotes. I think I put some theories in there. But 
That the truth is, we're not really sure uh, exactly who, whom, to to whom he was referring, and and it may not be a an Old Testament. Remember, there were like three hundred years between the last prophet and the coming of Jesus, right? So so there were there were some uh, in that time frame. You had different communities spring up, like the 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 Qumran community. That was very apocalyptic. And we've got some of the stuff that they wrote that, uh, and people look at some of the people in the Qumran community, Qumran community uh, and, and their ideas as uh, some answers to those questions. But uh, we, we just don't know. It's, it's too general uh, of, a, uh, of a descriptor for us to be certain about it. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. No. John the Baptist was a real human being. Elijah was a real human being. Elijah did not take on the form of John the Baptist, nor did John the Baptist take on the form of Elijah. John the Baptist was one who was like Elijah. And that's really what the text says. The, 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 the promise is that one like Elijah would come in the power and in the spirit of Elijah. If you look at the synoptic gospels describing John the Baptist. So it was not, Elijah is a real person uh, who didn't die. And when, 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 when John the Baptist was born, he didn't take on Elijah at all, period. And, and I'm not sure that that's exactly what the, the Jewish leaders were asking, but that is a possibility of something, kind of a Jewish reincarnation something, um, which is not going to happen. Yes? Yeah, but John the Baptist said, I am not Elijah. Right. And, and the only reason that the Jewish leaders were saying that he asked if he was Elijah is because they wanted some sword-wielding prophet to come back and destroy the Roman Empire. Um, and that, that's, what, that's what they were looking for. And, and so it, they, they didn't see commonality. Uh, they just knew that John the Baptist had a following. And that he was rough and tumble and he dressed weird and ate vegan food. That really wouldn't be vegan if he's just uh, locusts and honey. That's not vegan, is it? I, I'm confused. I don't know what vegan is. I, Jimmy. Great question. So John the Baptist says, I did not know him. I did not know him. I did not know him. Um, there is a strong possibility that they hung out at some point in time. But these are adult children now, and they probably, you know, uh, that's one explanation. They didn't encounter each other as adult men. That's one explanation. Another explanation is when John said, I did not know him, he's saying, I didn't know that this one was the one. Uh, he might have known Jesus as that's the son of Mary and Joseph, but he didn't know that Jesus is the Messiah until, the, uh, until he saw the Spirit descend upon him. Uh, that's another explanation. 
So you got to take your pick on those. I'm sorry? But John the Baptist jumping in the womb is different than John the Baptist seeing Jesus face to face because John the Baptist was in the womb and Jesus was in the womb. They didn't see each other. But, right, they would know their families, but the, the explanation, I did not know him. What do you think that means? They didn't know him. So, so there, there's, what, however you want to get at it, either they didn't meet as the, uh, the last time they saw each other were three-year-olds. And again, we have no record of Elizabeth and Zacharias. We don't know what happened to them. Maybe they died and John the Baptist was in, you know, on the streets all by himself. We don't know. We don't know s- stuff like that. That was kind of ugly, wasn't it? I, maybe they moved to Egypt. I don't know. Uh, but for whatever reason, John the Baptist said, I don't know. And he, he either meant that literally or he meant it theologically. And it's one of the two. Great questions. Others? Philip, do you have a question? Okay. All right. Yes. Uh-huh. It, there is no new controversy ever in theology. Well, what you have is you have debates that get a new cycle over time. And there were new circumstances that brought this cycle of debate up. Monogonese has always been a debated, you know, issue. Uh, but now it is uh, the, uh, I mean, if I can use some language. This is the eternal subordination of the Son or the, uh, uh, or the uh, uh, humanity being subordinating, subordination of the Son. The eternal subordination of the Son means that Jesus has always subordinated himself uh, to the Father. So there's kind of a hierarchy within the framework of the Trinity, the eternal subordination of the Son. So you have one group of people, these smart God-loving, Jesus-following people who talk about the eternal subordination of the Son and those who say there's no such thing as the eternal subordination of the Son, so the Father and the Son are equal, the whole Godhead equal, and there's no hierarchy in between, Uh, but that Jesus uh, subordinated himself, uh, Philippians 2, uh, where he submitted himself to the the direction of the Father uh, while he was a human being. Um, and, and so that gave rise to the language of monogonese. Is he the only begotten as though he, uh, and, and I, I can't even remember, monogonese, only begotten, equals eternal subordination of the Son. And if you believe monogonese equals only or unique one, then that does not equal eternal subordination of the Son. What is even more behind this, and really what created the debate is when people use this model. Jesus is the head, but Jesus submits himself to God the Father, and we are husbands, our head, but wives are to submit themselves to the husbands. So the, the idea, there's a, the model in Scripture that, that talks about how that wives are to submit to their husbands. Have you all read that? I don't know if you've read that. I've preached it a couple of times. 
Uh, just asking. Edie, you and I will have that Bible study later. Um, much later. But in the, in the language of, of subordination there, in, in, in a couple of those pa- passages, it talks about that Jesus sub, sub, submitted to the rule of the Father. That's subordination. And then it draws a comparison and says, just as Jesus submitted himself to the Father, wives are to submit to their husbands. Y'all, okay, is that? All right, so if what, what that did was is it led people to say, well, is Jesus forever and ever for all eternity subordinated to the Father? Uh, and, and then, uh, so it, it, what drove the discussion uh, was really the, the two, sorry, two words, egalitarian or complementarian view of the role of husbands and wives. Now, y'all can Google all that. And so it brings, and monogenese was a part of that discussion. You see how weird it gets? Theology is weird. It's great, but it gets weird. Any other questions? That's why I try to keep it simple. Go share Jesus with somebody. How about it, right? All right. Thank y'all so much, and we'll see you next week.